will to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 20, the very last verses. <clears throat> As we've said before, today the church celebrates Pentecost. That's the day that the Holy Spirit was given to the church, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, God exploded the peaceful comfort of his new church and propelled them headlong into the thick of the whole world, forcing them to live outside their comfort zone as aliens and strangers on earth, all in order to populate his church, not just with Jews as before, but with people from every tribe and nation and language and culture on earth, a task made possible only by the power of God's Spirit. This was what Jesus foretold in his last words before he ascended into heaven. We call it his great commission. And that's our text for this morning. Let me read it. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let me suggest three very simple but powerful truths that were taught here. The first is this. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the boss. In any discussion of any endeavor, a crucial question is who's in charge? That used to be a fairly straightforward question. Society was built on certain institutions that had clear-cut lines of authority. But as our commitment to individual freedom has increased, we have come to feel less and less bound by any authority figure. We tend to question whether anyone is in charge, whether anyone deserves our allegiance. But in our text, God is not confused with the modern uncertainty. Here in the midst of universal, in the most universal, absolute terms, God's word declares that Jesus is the boss. Listen again to verse 18. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has not only been raised from the dead, he's been put in charge of the whole universe. Christ Jesus is not just a spiritual king, a head of a spiritual church in our hearts. He's the Lord, the master of the entire earth, as well as heaven, the heavens. That means Christ has the right to do, to command whatever he pleases. Or to say it in the simplest terms I know, Jesus is the boss. Now, in one sense, that's always been true. The Son of Man, the Son of God who came into the world repeatedly demonstrated he had the prerogatives of God. He was from eternally, eternity past, the Son of God. He never laid aside that authority. But in another sense, Jesus, who came as the Son of Man, has been given this authority by virtue of his obedience to the Father, obedience which involved going all the way to death on the cross to pay for our sins. So Jesus Christ... The God-man, the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, this unique person 
has been raised from the dead as a testimony of his deity and as a testimony of the effectiveness of his work on the cross. This Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father to his rightful place as the ruler of everything. Now the early church understood this and they confessed it simply, Jesus is the Lord. That flew in the face of the Roman Pledge of Allegiance, which said, Caesar is Lord. But Christians knew that Caesar was not the Lord. And because they would not compromise or abandon their confession, they were thrown to the lions. Still, they were right, and Caesar was wrong. Caesar is now ancient history, but Jesus is still the Lord, the boss, the ruler of heaven and earth. This morning, we're about to hear what God wants us to do with our lives. But before we do, we need to get this matter of authority clear in our minds. For already we have ideas of our own. We have personal preferences. We have prior responsibilities. We have long-range career plans. Not to mention tomorrow's already full schedule. But Jesus reserves the right to preempt all of those things. His plans have priority, for he is sovereign. Here he says it plainly. All authority It's given to me. So what does the Lord tell us to do? Well, that's our second point. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. Perhaps you've noticed people are given to causes. We want to invest our life in something bigger than just ourselves, bigger than just today. So some invest their time and lives into environmental activism, Believing that uh, if we have no safe environment, eventually we all die. Ever so often a journalist will go to jail rather than reveal his or her sources, believing that our society cannot live without a free press. Many good people willingly get themselves arrested as they uh, block uh, abortion clinics, believing that if life itself is not sacred, we're all hopelessly endangered. And the list goes on. People putting their lives on the line for some cause greater than themselves. But you have only one life. What cause do you invest it in? And is there any cause that eclipses all the others? Is there any cause which have pursued whole's hope of ultimate peace and well-being for the whole earth, for all generations? Is there any cause noble enough to give perspective to all of life, for all people, everywhere? Well, yes, there actually is. Jesus, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, calls us to invest our lives in obedience to this command. Go make disciples. That's what he says in verse 19. Go make disciples. Now, what's a disciple? Well, the word itself means a person who's a learner. In the gospel and the book of Acts, where the word's used some 250 times, a disciple is one who has attached himself to the Lord Jesus as his Lord, his master, his teacher. One writer explains, to be a disciple is to be brought into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking the yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. Folks, you have to be a disciple before you can make disciples. So first of all, I call you to discipleship, to concern yourself above everything else to knowing 
and serving Jesus Christ. Then Jesus commands us who have become his disciples to go and reproduce ourselves, to make disciples from every tribe and nation and culture on earth. This is the all-encompassing cause which is worthy of our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure, our energy. Now, this is not the first time that God has given an all-inclusive command. Immediately after the creation, God gave his human image bearers another commission. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We commonly call this the cultural mandate. Here God called his human creatures to replenish and fill the earth and to exercise dominion over all of the creation. Nancy Piercy in her book Total Truth explains this way. Be fruitful and multiply means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. Subdue the earth means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music, This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. So which are we called to do here? Fill and subdue the earth for God's glory? Or go make disciples? Two great truths. One called the cultural mandate, one called the Great Commission. May I suggest that Christians have often tended to choose one or the other. So some give themselves to every kind of endeavor as stewards of God's creation, excited about literature, music, and science, and government, and culture, but with seldom a thought of sharing the gospel with someone and making them a disciple. Other Christians believe the world and all man's efforts are going to go up in smoke anytime soon. So all that really matters is evangelism. Go save souls from the coming fire of judgment. Which is it? Or is it really one or the other at all? I've thought about this a good bit this week, and I was greatly helped by an article um, or or a chapter of a book written by John Frame. He's a former uh, theology professor of mine at Westminster Seminary, just a Side note, I didn't understand a word he said when I was in seminary. Um, he's a brilliant man, great musician. Then he got married. And I read him and it makes perfect sense. His good wife brought him down to earth, I think. Sorry, John Frame. Anyway, his conclusion is that the uh, Great Commission and the culture mandate are essentially the same. The culture mandate was given to mankind before sin appeared, before he fell into sin. Nonetheless, after the fall, if we read Genesis 4, we still see people trying to do this kind of thing. They built civilizations, they forged tools, they wrote music. And what was the result? More strife, more pollution, more war, uh, more more, uh, destruction of the earth, more dehumanization of people. So to quote Frame, if human beings are to fulfill the cultural mandate, their hearts must be subdued by God before the earth can be subdued by them. That's what the Great Commission does. 
It brings about a transformation of people so that they, so that they can go and fill the earth, subduing it to the glory of God. A little bit later, he says, the task of the church then is to carry out the great commission. When it does, it will also be enabling people to then carry out the cultural mandate. You see, folks, there's a significant difference between God's agenda of making disciples and much of what passes for serving the Lord these days. There are many good things that we might pursue without ever really addressing the command to make disciples. For example, Jesus didn't tell us to exercise dominion, care for and subdue the earth just so we could live in prosperity while others continue in their rebellion against the Creator. No, he told us to rule over the earth in order to bring disciples to Christ, and he told us to bring disciples to Christ in order that they might rule over the earth as they should for his glory. And Jesus didn't just tell us to feed the poor so they could be more comfortable as they, had, uh, as they uh, run headlong toward judgment. No, feeding the poor is not an end in itself. Jesus is calling disciples from among those weakest, neediest, most hopeless people. And we're there to make disciples as we feed them. And Jesus didn't just tell, call us to work for justice so that people would get a fair shake in the courts of the land until they stood condemned before the courts of heaven. Oh no, Jesus calls us to live as his disciples with a passion for justice and righteousness so that others might see his character in us and be drawn to him to be his disciples. Jesus didn't tell us to stop the tragedy of abortion so that these children can grow up and continue in the rebellion of their parents. Frankly, they would be better off aborted if that were the case. The the guilt would be less. Jesus calls us to preserve life in order to make disciples for him, to bring these little ones to Jesus. In fact, Jesus didn't call us to raise our own children, to be bright and talented and cultured, just so they could have a higher standard of living and provide for us in our old age. No, Jesus calls us to bear sons and daughters to him, to seek our lives, uh, our, to sink our lives day and night, day after day, into making them effective, disciplined, knowledgeable, committed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciples who themselves will go to the ends of the earth, taking our grandchildren with them, to make disciples of every nation and people and race and tribe and family on earth. Why is this so important? Because only this cause holds hope for the world. The only hope for the world ultimately is is the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom come. His will being done on on earth as it is in heaven. So the only worthy cause in the world is to make his rule known. To make disciples who live under his lordship committed to his word. This morning as we celebrate the coming of God's Spirit at Pentecost, I tell you it was for this that the Spirit came into the world, that we might go and make disciples. Finally, with this command comes the promise, our third point. Jesus never abandons us. 
Jesus never abandons us. One of the great tragedies of Vietnam, whatever you think of that war, was that we sent young men out to put their lives on the line, and then we abandoned them. Some of them have never gotten over it to this day. You see, there are few things as bitter as being abandoned. Spending oneself only to be deserted, forsaken. Today, in Jesus' name, I'm calling you to give up your life, your plans, your preferences, comforts, goals, etc., and go make disciples. And I must warn you, this is not a very popular task. In our pluralistic culture, disciple-making is, view, is viewed as intolerance of other people's religion. And as you know, intolerant, intolerance is the cardinal sin in our culture. So don't think this is going to make you popular. It's going to make you a bigot. Furthermore, this is not easy. The work is long. Progress is often slow. Opposition is strong. Misunderstanding abounds. And just when you think you've made some progress in, in, in making disciples, the very people you've prayed for and taught and counseled and worked with and given yourself for may turn around and reject you and turn against you. When Margaret Clarkston was a 23-year-old recently graduated teacher, the only job she could find was teaching in some remote mining camp where there was no church, no family, terribly hard circumstances, and profound loneliness. She was tempted to quit. But in reading Jesus' words, as the Father sent me, so send I you, she realized this is the cost of faithfulness, to serve where he put me. And so she stuck it out, labored on, and wrote a hymn about it. Here's how it goes. It's written as if Jesus is speaking. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and, soft and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to loneliness and longing with heart a hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one, so send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long, to love when men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend though it be blood, to spend and spare not, so send I you to taste of Calvary. Dear people, given all that, we need to hear this last truth loud and clear. Jesus will never abandon us. That's what he promises in verse 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This morning, if you're feeling the cost of your commitment to Christ, if the road is getting long, the obstacles seem insurmountable, the task seems hopeless, let me encourage you. It's not time to throw in the towel. The Lord Jesus is still here by your side. He puts you in this situation. He's still in control. He's not a million miles away, buried in some bureaucracy. In Revelation 2, 
the Lord Jesus presents himself to his suffering church as, as, as standing right in the middle of the churches, symbolized by these lampstands. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. He never abandons us. Oh, this text doesn't tell how he does that, but on this day of Pentecost, we are reminded that Jesus came to be present with his church in the person of his Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' own promise back in John 14. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. That's Jesus' promise. That he won't abandon us. What is added here in Matthew is the extent of that presence he promises. I will be with you always. Every day. The whole day. Day in. Day out. Today. I will be with you until the very end of the age. That is until the task is complete. Folks, this is our guarantee of success. We're not sent out to do something in our own strength. Jesus, who's risen from the dead, is is pursuing his kingdom. We're simply called to participate in it, to be his hands and feet, to be uh, 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 voicing what he has told us to say. There's no possibility that that this task will fail. The one who calls us is the one who rose from the dead, who's alive. He himself is present in his church. He's fulfilling the great commission. Here is hope encouragement, help when we need it, and a reason to go on. Jesus never abandons us. God has a whole different agenda than we tend to have. We busy ourselves making life more comfortable, more prosperous, more fun. Living in communities with people just like us. Raising perfect kids to live nearby. Raising our perfect grandchildren all protected from the world's ugliness, which we only hear about from a distance. And as Christians, we often think that God gave us his Holy Spirit to make us happy in this setting. But God has quite a different vision. His vision is that we come to understand his lordship. Jesus is the boss. He has absolute authority. And then as we follow him ourselves, he calls us to share the gospels, the gospel, to make other disciples to teach them, to grow them, to bring them to him. Wherever and whenever the opportunity presents itself, no matter what the cost, to be about his business. But we do not fear. We do not shirk back. We certainly don't quit. For he has also promised, I will never abandon you. This is God's agenda for every one of us today. What it will look like with you, what it looked like with me will be different, but this is God's agenda for us. To know that he's the Lord. That he's called us to make disciples and to trust him. To not abandon us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that you have, that you give meaning to our life and yet, Lord, often the things that you call us to scare us to death. And so we thank you that you've given us your promise. That it's not just about us. It's not about our strength. It's not about how smart we are and how talented we are. It's only about us being your disciples 
out serving you with whatever opportunities you lay before us. Make us faithful. Give us wisdom to know what that is. May we not cling to anything enough that we would say no to you if you send us elsewhere to serve you in some way. Oh, Lord, we need your help. We're, not, we're no more capable of being faithful disciples than we were capable of bringing ourselves to you. But we ask that by your spirit you would work in us and grow us and, and, and give us clear vision, lead us, guide us, Lord, and watch over us as we are faithful to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.